Well, today we are going to continue uh, the preaching series that we've been working through uh, this fall, which we've entitled Living the Mission. And uh, we said that the theme of this series is simply, if we're going to live the mission, we must first understand the mission. And so we started in the Old Testament with Jeremiah, and we saw that a very important truth, I believe, that the kingdom, the mission of the kingdom of God is not so much about wanting to change our culture before we can accomplish what God has called us to do, but rather we are called to carry out the mission of God while in the midst of a dark and deteriorating culture. Last week, we considered what Jesus declared his mission to be in Luke 4, verses 18 to 19, and, and we concluded that living the mission means being empowered by the Spirit to bring restoration, release, recovery to broken people through word, through deeds, and through justice. Today, we're going to begin to observe how Jesus lived out his mission as we take a closer look at some examples that you find throughout the Gospels. Now, originally I intended to stay only in Luke, but there were a couple outside of Luke, and one of them today that I thought to not include these would really uh, do injustice. So I am going to go a little broader uh, than Luke. I want to start with this short clip. We think you need to integrate your global supply chain, move assembly overseas, and accelerate inventory velocity. Great. Do it. Sir, we don't actually do what we propose. We just propose it. Yeah. Can you believe that guy? I've always loved that commercial because so much of life is like that. And I want to suggest this morning that Jesus wasn't just proposing in Luke 4 what his mission should look like. He actually lived it out and he showed us through his life that the words he declared on that particular day framed everything he would do from that moment on. And so as he lived out the mission, his desire is that we would live that mission that he modeled for us out as well. We believe that we were created in the image of God and we were created to love God and to love others. And so within all of us, there's a need to love and to be loved. Without love, we're incomplete. The Bible says that God so loved the world that he gave his son. The Apostle Paul said of these three, of, of, of faith and hope and love, he said the greatest of these three is love. Jesus said to his disciples prior to his departure, he said, it's by your love, one for another, that the world is going to know that you belong to me. It's God's love for humanity that drives the mission. God's love for humanity is what drives the mission. It's the love of God that compels us to love those who live and believe different than we live and believe. It's the love of God. It was the love of God that caused Jesus to go to the cross to redeem all of sinful humanity. And so love is critical to the mission. Love is critical to the mission. 
And so today we're going to be considering a very familiar passage of Scripture to many people. I'm assuming that most of you have heard it before. If not, you'll hear it today. About a woman who understood the painful side of love and how her encounter with Jesus enabled her to be loved in a way that she had never been loved before. And so we're going to see in this scripture this morning that because Jesus faithfully lived the mission, this woman's life was forever changed. So we're going to read John chapter 4, verses 1 to 10. It says, The Pharisees heard that Jesus was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John, although in fact it was not Jesus who baptized, but his disciples. And when the Lord learned of this, he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. Now he had to go through Samaria, so he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about the sixth hour, and when a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, "'Will you give me a drink?' His disciples had gone into town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, "'You're a Jew, and I'm a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans.' Jesus answered her, "'If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water.'" Today, I want us to consider three actions of love that Jesus demonstrates in this passage that model for us what it means to live the mission. The first that we're going to begin with today is that love pursues. We're told Jesus is in Judea, and he's experiencing this ongoing resistance from the religious leaders who really are not buying into the fact that he is spiritual at all. And so Jesus decided that this was a good time to move on, to go somewhere else, to get away from this. And so he decided that he would go to Galilee. Now, there are two possible paths that he could take, and I've brought up a a little map here to help us. We see Judea down here in the bottom. And so the first route you could take is to to go to to your right here across the the river and, and up along. And so, your first option is circle around Samaria. Now, that's what all the other Jews did because they despised the Samaritans. It was believed in Jesus' day that Samaritans were unclean. And so, if you came in contact with a Samaritan, you would become unclean and you would have to go through all of that work of the ritual of of becoming clean again. And so, it was easier to avoid the Samaritans and and not come into contact with their uncleanliness than it was to, to take the shortcut through. And so, that's what they would do. This whole problem began back in 722 BC when we see the fall of the northern kingdom of Israel, that there were many Jews that are dispersed into Babylon, and uh, consequently many people from Babylon and other places came and resettled in amongst the Jews that were left behind, and they're scattered in, in Israel amongst the Jews that are left. And these people who came brought with them their own religious beliefs, their their own practices with them that were not the same as the Jewish worship of God. And so in time, what we see is that 
they begin to integrate into marriages with the Jews that were left behind. And so they began to blend their faiths together, creating this new faith, which was a combination of both. And so in 593 BC, when the Jews came back, they desired to renew their worship again. They'd learned their lesson. They wanted to get back to worship, set the temple back up, get things right, and get moving. Well, they discovered that waiting for them back home was this group of people that had this blend of beliefs that did not reflect at all with what they knew that God expected of them. And so this rift creates, is created between these two groups. So by the time of Jesus, there's great rivalry here. There's hatred between these two groups. Hatred. And they avoided each other. And so even though, as you can see, traveling through Samaria was the most practical, it was avoided at all costs. The second option would be to travel through Samaria. And Jesus said these words that he had to go. Now, and the English translation of that is actually very poor because the original text says, I need to pierce through. In other words, I, I don't need to go around. I need to go through. There's, there's, this is more than a shortcut. This is more than a, a convenience. There's a purpose in all of this. And so we're told that there's this woman in Samaria and God has set up an opportunity here for a divine appointment that's going to forever change her life. Now, in order for this divine appointment to happen, and this is very simple, but this is key to living the mission, Jesus had to go to where she was. If this divine appointment was going to happen, he had to go there. And so here he is, he's choosing in this moment to go against culture, to go against the religious establishment to go against the practices of his very own people, and instead of going around, he pierced through. And we're told he found her outside of the city of Sikar, sitting at Jacob's well. Now, religious leaders in Jesus' time would insist that the temple or the synagogue was the place where people were impacted spiritually. That spiritual impact needed to take place in the context of the religious buildings. But Jesus took his ministry to her. Because she wasn't the type of person that would be in a synagogue on Saturday. She's not the type of person who would go up to the temple in Jerusalem to worship. She wasn't the synagogue type. She wasn't the temple type. And so he went where she was. He pursued her because love pursues. Secondly, love persists. Jesus reached his intended location. He began to interact with her. Now, people in the culture at this time would have told Jesus, Jesus, you have no right talking to her for two reasons. One, she's a woman. And you're a man, and you shouldn't be talking to a woman alone, a strange woman like that. That's just wrong. And on top of that, she's Samaritan. For so those two reasons, you have no right to talk to her. But his concern was not what others thought of him or believed that he should be doing. His concern was this broken, hurting woman. That was his concern. People in his culture would have told him, you can go to the well in the middle of the day, but you're, you're not going to find anybody there because people don't go there in the middle of the day. 
Animals were watered early in the morning and in the evening in the cooler parts of the day. It was done usually by groups of women traveling together. And so other than the odd stranger, you know, coming by, you're likely, you're not going to find a woman at the well in the middle of the day. In fact, the fact that she was there at an off time by herself suggests that she's, there's something going on here. There's a problem. She's likely rejected by the other women. Maybe it's her life. Maybe it's her past. We're not really sure why she's there, but we can read into the text. And so she's alone at the well in the middle of the day. What I find interesting here that Jesus wasn't drawn to the crowds. Crowds were drawn to him, but Jesus wasn't drawn to crowds. There's only one person, and one was enough. She was important. And so Jesus walked up to her and said, I'll take a drink, please. Now she expressed to him, uh, sir, I'm sorry, but this is really unusual for you to be, to be asking me this. You're a male Jew, and I'm a female Samaritan, and maybe this is just not appropriate for this conversation to be happening. And Jesus said, if you knew the gift of God, if you knew who I was, if you, know, if you knew who I am, you would have asked me for a drink, and I would have given you living water. Now, living water in those times was simply a word for water that came from a river or a stream, any water that was moving, that had life in it. Water was very valuable and limited in this area and still continues to be today. To to have sufficient well water, that was a great thing. To have access to living water, well, that was the ultimate, but in this particular location, it was also impossible. So she responded, she said, you know what, Jacob's well that we're at right here, this is the only source of water in this area. There's, there's no, there are no rivers or streams around here, Jesus. She had lived her whole life there. She had never seen anything different than getting water from this well. But she was talking about natural water, and, and so living water was not possible. It was not available as far as she understood. But he was talking about spiritual water. He was talking symbolically. And through him, that was possible and it was available. And so she limited his offer. She rejected his offer because she based her response on what she could see and what she knew, what she had always known. Now, I want us to notice the buildup in the conversation. It did start with small talk, but eventually it led to to addressing some very significant and serious needs. And she's reluctant at first, after all. I mean, he's a stranger, and he's embarrassed. This is embarrassing. So without the, you know, perhaps the odd person sitting next to you on an airplane who tells you their life story in five seconds, or someone in a hair salon that's telling their whole life story to everybody who wants to listen, now I know why they put those things over their heads. I think it's so you don't have to hear the stories all around you. Next time I go in, I'm asking for one of those. You can picture it right now, right? It's embarrassing. But she slowly opened up. There were things he knew about her, and he only knew them because Luke helps us to see that Jesus' ministry is a spirit-empowered ministry whose life is directed. Jesus is led and directed by the Spirit, and so he's having this divine encounter, and he's revealing a clearer picture of her situation. And Jesus says, where's your husband 
And Jesus then responds and says, you've had five husbands, and the one you're with now is not your husband. Now, when we read that, we can judge this very quickly, but you know that this is a sinful woman who lacks character, but may I suggest today, we really don't know all the details of her life. We do know that remarriage was common in biblical times because most females who got married were young to mid-teens. Their husbands were typically mid to high 20s, and so there was a significant age gap to begin with. On top of that, you have a shortened life expectancy. It was not uncommon for a husband to die and a young widow to be left behind. And so perhaps, who knows, maybe a couple of the five died. Let's give her the benefit of the doubt. Maybe a couple of them died. Mix into there a couple of divorces. And by the time she reaches man number six, there's probably no dowry left to be given. So then she's taken on as a concubine without a commitment to marriage. Because there's no dowry, he can't be her husband. And so she, she serves him as a husband, she's available to him as a husband, but she doesn't get the respect of being acknowledged as his wife because there's no dowry to, to complete the transaction of marriage. The point is, is that Jesus knows who she really is. Jesus knows what she really is. He knows what she's been through, any poor choices she's made, and he still is offering her a chance to be loved by God. But before Jesus could meet her needs, he needed to persist. He needed to persist. And as he per persisted, she began to share the details of her life. Because the truth is, she wants her needs met. And so when the conversation gets to a point where it's becoming uncomfortable, well, she's trying to change the subject. And she says, it's getting really uncomfortable. And she goes, well, let's talk about the proper place to worship. Because Samaritans and Jews disagreed on the proper location. Let's talk about this. But Jesus wouldn't have any of the distraction. And so he persisted. He stayed with her. And over time, she began to understand who he was. First, she goes, well, you're a Jew. And then she said, are you greater than Jacob? And then at one point, she says, you're a prophet. And by the time the story is done, she said, you're the Messiah. There's a progression of understanding here as Jesus persists. Because Jesus persisted, because he stayed with her, because he kept going with her, she eventually got to the point where she opened her life. Thirdly and finally, love provides. When the woman left her house that day, it was likely a, house, a day like any other day. She needed water. Her livestock needed water. Her new reality was midday, so off she went. I'm sure most days she got there, there wasn't anybody to be found. It was all by herself. She probably didn't expect to find anyone there. She certainly didn't expect to find Jesus. She came to draw water to satisfy her natural thirst, but deep down inside her was a greater thirst. And it was the inner thirst that Jesus was interested in satisfying. She needed God's forgiveness, God's grace, God's love. She may have been a victim. 
She may have been hurt by others. She may have made a ton of wrong choices. But Jesus offered her spiritual water to satisfy the inner longing because that's what she needed most. The water he was offering was forgiveness and mercy, value, acceptance, hope, love. She needed to make a decision. Would she accept what he was offering or would she reject it? And she decided in that moment, as awkward as some of the moments were, as embarrassing as it was, that the details of her her colored life were laid out before her, she decided to accept. She had spent her life Pursuing what was understood to be true love, desiring to be worthy without any success. She found herself at this horrible place. What she struggled with for so long was met in this moment when Jesus provided for her exactly what she needed. And I love the symbolism when John writes this, and I've loved it from the first time I read it, is that she left her pot on the well and went into the city a changed woman. The pot that symbolized her old life, that symbolized natural water, that symbolized something that she would take in over and over but would not change her in the least because she had received something greater, she left it behind. And she began to tell everyone about her life-changing encounter, what Jesus had done for her. And she told them, she said, I believe that this man is the long-awaited Messiah. You gotta come see him. And people were looking at her and they said, there's something different about you. You are so changed that, you know what? We want to meet this person that could change somebody so radically. And so they went to meet Jesus. And when they met Jesus, it says they begged him, don't leave. What an interesting contrast. Just behind him, the religious leaders didn't want Jesus to stay. The religious elite that knew the scriptures that had waited for him for so long that were waiting in anticipation for the Messiah didn't want him to stay. But these Samaritans, they begged him, stay with us. And he stayed, it says, two more days. And they too believed. His love for this woman, his love for the Samaritans who were hated by everyone resulted in spiritual change because love provides. As I reflect on this text and our series as we're going through, there are three observations that I'd like to draw in terms of us living the mission Because Luke makes it very clear that Jesus established his mission and then he said to his followers, I'm leaving, I'm handing it off to you. You carry it out as I began it. So what does it mean for us? The first thing I want us to consider is is go and be. So as you know, those of you who know me, I was born and raised in the context of the church I've been in the Pentecostal church my whole life since I've been old enough to go. I've seen a lot. I've done a lot. I've been around a lot. And an observation I've made is this. When faith, when spirituality becomes legalistic, a sets of rules and based on holiness and standards and 
expectations, when faith and spirituality becomes legalistic, we build walls to, to protect what we've created. We, we build walls. And the religious leaders of Jesus' day did just that. They had become so legalistic with their rules and expectations that they had to build walls so they could determine who was worthy to be inside of them and who needed to stay outside of them. And so they added rules on top of rules to try and get people to live in a certain way. And if they were able to do it, they were in. And if they couldn't, they were out. And they would accuse and attack those who didn't live up to the expectations. They would walk around on the Sabbath just waiting for you to mess up so they could humiliate you publicly. And the result is that when Jesus arrived on the scene, it was a state of spiritual death. But when mission becomes the heart of our faith, not legalism, love builds bridges, not walls. And so those bridges are built to those who are sinful, who are broken, who are hurting, who are confused. I remember back to the 1980s, some of you young adults who are going to the fire hall today for lunch will say, I wasn't even born then. Probably all of you would say that. I was training for ministry at Eastern Pentecostal Bible College, now Master's College and Seminary. We would have these well-known who's who guests come through and preach in our chapels. In this particular time, we had this guest preacher, and he was known to be an animated, exciting preacher. He could yell and scream and run around and spit, and those are basically all the conditions of true anointing. And he was preaching an exciting sermon on Nehemiah. That Nehemiah rebuilt the walls. And the thesis of his text was this. This is what he told us. That we as leaders, as pastors, as churches, we are called to build walls. We are called to build walls so we can keep compromise out. We can keep the world out. We can keep sin out. We can keep sinful people out. We're not called to build bridges with the world. And so he preached Nehemiah out of context to prove a point that we are here to build walls of protection. You may have sensed that I may not have agreed with his text. For many years... If there's a flaw with the church, it's been that we became wall builders. We became really good wall builders. In our attempt to strive for holiness and purity, in our attempt to disassociate with the sinful world, we became good wall builders. And so instead of associating with the sinful world, we segregated ourselves and we expected if we were going to have any contact, they were going to have to come to us. Come and, come and see. Come inside and see what God has to say to you. Come and experience the presence of God. Come inside of here. And there was a time, I remember growing up, now your culture was different than mine likely, but I remember Sunday morning was for the saints and Sunday night was for the ain'ts. It was. That's how it worked. You'd never see an unbeliever in church on Sunday morning. In fact, you wouldn't even see half of the believers because 
Because what you had was, uh, you know, mom was home cooking Sunday dinner. Heaven forbid you missed the gravy, which is a national drink where I come from, by the way. And so, but Sunday night, oh man, there'd be two or three sinners in the back row and you would, the worship leader and the preacher and people would go over and you're just trying to help you make that walk to the front of the church so you could give your life to Jesus. Because if you were going to give your heart to Jesus, it was going to happen on Sunday night in the service. That was my upbringing. They would come to us. But once you came, you had to completely disassociate with all the people you associated with before. Dumbest evangelistic plan ever. Who knows more unbelieving people than someone who was just an unbeliever? Oh no, you got to leave all that behind. You got to stay in the walls. And maybe you can try and get them to come in. But other than that, you don't. What I'm saying is that the church is not about come and see it's about being mobilized in this world. It's about go and be. In the Great Commission, Jesus said, as you go, there's an assumption that you're going. You're living this life out there in culture. As you're doing that, as you're living your life in this world, make disciples. Build the kingdom. Jesus built bridges, not walls. He built bridges. And so we have two choices of how we walk this world as followers of Jesus. One is we can circle the perimeter. And some people have spent years doing that. Avoid unbelievers. Huddle in the church. Avoid the world around us. The focus of the church will be on our activities and our programs and, and you know, not kingdom activity. Our energy is going to go into running the church. We're going to use all our people and wear them out to run programs that we want to have. Does that sound familiar at all? Anyone here ever been worn out by the church? Stop lying and raise your hand. 90% of you are agreeing with me in your head. And the result is everything in the local church becomes about believers, not those who need to come to faith. And when that happens, we're busy, but we accomplish very little for the kingdom of God. Don't get me wrong. I love the local church for some reason, which... I will never understand, likely. God called me to serve, and I've given my life to serve the local church. I think there was a lot of other people that would have done this a lot better than I have, but for some reason, he got stuck on me. And I believe that the local church, we must invest in believers. I believe that. I believe we need to minister to the needs of believers, and we need to prepare believers to live this Christian faith. But I also believe that how we invest our time, our resources, and our people in the local church is often far from what God intended. There's days I wake up and I think, certainly, Jesus, this is not what you had in mind when you said, I'm going to build my church. Because the problem is we stick to what we're comfortable with and we avoid going outside the walls that we've created because change for us is not easy. Or we can pierce through. We can go to them. We can meet them where they are. We can meet people one-on-one. -on -one. We can have encounters with people who don't live like we live and believe what we believe. Now, I'm not suggesting we compromise our values or our principles, our beliefs, or putting ourselves in places that are, are, you know, it's just inappropriate to be. I don't support people who want to live a 
worldly lifestyle, so they pretend to reaching out for, to people just so they could be places they shouldn't be. But Jesus is a perfect example of going where people were without compromising what was right. Because the truth is, there are divine appointments that will only be realized in the kingdom of God if we are faithful to go. Most divine encounters won't take place in here. They just won't. Because many of them are not in here type of people. They're not coming. They're going to be in your neighborhood. They might be in your house. It might be in your car. It might be in your backyard. It might be at your school or your work. It might be at a social event. It might be in a restaurant. It might be your long commute in the wee hours of the morning on a train. Opportunities will come when you least expect, when you're busy and when you're preoccupied. And that's why we're always alert and ready and praying that God, by His Spirit, will lead us. But if we're going to be led by the Spirit to touch other people's lives, it starts with wanting opportunities and expecting opportunities. And if we don't desire to be led by the Spirit, if we don't desire to be used by God to reach the lives of others when we leave this place, it will never happen. We have to determine that we will go and we will do what God is leading us to do. Secondly, I'm pretty sure the next two are not near as long as that one was. Invest in people. Here's something else I've noticed. Sometimes as followers of Jesus, we see people as projects. Hmm. We target them as those we want to convert it's like when I was in my first year of Bible college and we were doing a personal witnessing course and it was due the next day and I found myself sitting in the, in, in the donut shop with my, you know, glasses on looking for the most vulnerable that I could have a successful moment with and write the right paper. Who's the target? Who's the target? Who's the one we want to impose our message on? There's hundreds of books that have been written on how to convert someone, how to convince people in the process of evangelism. Plans, programs, and methodologies, methodologies, and I'm not suggesting that they all have no value. Don't misunderstand me. The problem is this. People without Jesus are often presented as projects and targets, not intentionally. Our motives are pure. We really do want people to meet Jesus, but it's our methodology that's flawed. And the truth is, most people see right through it. They can smell you coming a mile away. They know you're just trying to convert them. You're just trying to get them to believe like you believe, to live like you live, and they become guarded. I want to suggest this morning that Jesus didn't see people as projects. He saw them as those who were worthy to invest time into. They were worthy to be loved. They were worthy of his forgiveness. So they can experience the pure joy of life change that he came to bring. We believe that Jesus is the solution. And living the mission means pe helping people see Jesus as the solution to significant life change. But the truth is, sometimes people want a solution, and they're being willing, but they're not being willing to do what's required to get one. Because those are two very different things. The tendency of human nature 
is that sometimes we try to hide certain things in our lives. We don't want to admit that we have needs or that something needs to change. We don't want want other people to see our failures. We don't want them to see our hurts and our pains and our vulnerability and our weaknesses. So we, you know, we're embarrassed about broken relationships. We're embarrassed about the reality in our lives. And so often it's much better to pretend we're strong and in control and and whole and we put a lot of energy into what we want people to believe about us. But then Jesus walks into that and says, "I I want to heal your deepest wounds. He wants us to give our deepest wounds to him. And so he persists. He's not willing just to bounce off the surface. He just keeps going at it because he's not content to leave us where we are. He wants to set us free. He wants us to be able to sing like we, are, we sang this morning. We are no longer a slave to fear. We're a child of God. He wants to shape our story so there's a different ending. And so it takes time. In our culture especially, it takes time for people to let their guards down, for people to trust other people, to build relationship before someone will believe that Jesus is someone who can change their lives. I believe most people want a solution for their pain, their hurts, their losses, their worries, their relationships, their needs, their failures, their sin. So in living the mission, we must invest in people, willing to invest the necessary time, patience, humility, endurance, and kindness for as long as it takes so they begin to see he is the answer. Thirdly and finally, Jesus was able to meet the needs in the life of this Samaritan woman at the well because he was able to strip away the wall that she had built around her life and speak into the deepest wounds and her deepest needs. And as Jesus patiently showed genuine concern and care, those walls began to crumble, making her feel valued despite what her life said about her. I want to remind us today that it's the Holy Spirit that enables us to see past the surface of a person's life and feel compassion and concern and care for people that we would normally not be drawn to or feel compassion, concern, and care for. It's the Holy Spirit that enables us to love those who are different than we are. It's the Holy Spirit that... that you know, enables us to live different, to love those who live different than how we live. It's the Holy Spirit that enables us to love those who believe different than we believe. If we're going to experience seeing people's needs being met and their lives being changed by the power of the love and forgiveness of Jesus, we must begin with wanting to understand what their needs are. And it's only when we understand needs that we're able to direct them to the one who can meet their needs. Now, the easiest place to begin in living the mission is loving those you desire to help find Jesus. Last week after I finished the service and I was in the back, someone from the congregation came to me and they asked a question. And their question was based on a question that I had asked in in my sermon as I was making a point that I believed very strongly. And this is what I said. I said, who better to demonstrate justice for the poor, the homeless, youth at risk, 
those suffering with mental illness, the hungry, those caught up in human trafficking, the LGBTQ plus community, the environment, and followers of Jesus who are filled with the Spirit. And so the question they asked was this. They said, I agree with what you said, but where do I start? Specifically, I want to know where do I start with the LGBTQ plus community? Where do I start with gay people? Where do I start with the whole world of homosexuality? Where do I start? Give me something specific. That was a great question. And my answer was very simple. I said, start by loving them. Because in my experience, almost every single gay person that I have ever had a conversation with has made this statement to me. They believe that the church and followers of Jesus hate them. They do. Without fail, the church hates me. Christians hate me. So we start by showing them we don't hate them. And the best way to do that, the best way to not hate me (laughs) is to love me. Now this may be hard for some people, but if you've raised children, you understand this. You can love someone, you can show someone love and not agree with everything they do. Anybody here happy with every single thing your child's ever done? Did you stop loving them? No, of course you wouldn't. That'd be ridiculous. You can love someone, you can show love to someone without agreeing with them. I had an encounter about a week or two ago that really shook my foundation. I got to tell you. I don't know where I came across it. It was an article I was reading. I think it was in Christianity Today, but I'm not sure. And I'm reading about a person. I'd never heard of her before, but maybe some of you have. Her name was Jennifer Hatmaker. Well-known Christian author. She has a book on the New York Times bestselling list. She does, she's a blogger. She's, uh, she writes Bible study curriculums. You know, well-known in, in Christian circles. Her husband's a pastor. They live in Austin, Texas, and there was a LGBTQ event, big event. And as a church, they thought, let's not be that church that shows up with the signs that says, God hates gays, turn or burn, you're going to hell, whatever. Let's show up with something different. So they decided to simply do something. If I was in the room, I would have thought, That's the dumbest idea I've ever heard. But I think that a lot about ideas that I'm wrong about. And so that's that's okay. Let's make signs that say free hugs. And our shirts, you know, she said, I'm going to wear one that says free mom hug. And her husband, who was the pastor, said he wore one saying free dad hugs. And it was free grandma hug and free grandpa hug. and Like you get the point, right? And they just stood outside with this sign that said free hugs and these t-shirts. And this is what she said. Our arms were never empty. Can you imagine? 
all of these teenage kids and all of these young adult kids are lining up for a free hug. And as they're hugging, here's the things the kids said. When I told my parents I was gay, they kicked me out of the house. Second, my dad hasn't spoken to me in three years. My mom doesn't love me anymore. My church disowned me. And as they're hugging in, they're saying, I miss this. And this was the one that really got me. One kid said, please, just just one more. I haven't been hugged in so long. Can you just give me one more? Just one more. Wow. What kind of message do you think those kids got that day from those followers of Jesus? You're loved. They weren't saying, I agree with your lifestyle. They weren't saying, you know, keep going. They were saying, listen, in the midst of all of this, we love you and God loves you. Period. Was there a fallout? Oh, yes. A lot of Christian spiritual leaders were critical. And even Lifeway Publishing, and I'll say it because it's in the news, one of the biggest publishers of Christian materials in North America stopped selling her materials. Yeah, that's what we should do. Folks, living the mission will cost you dearly. But it's only when we understand people's needs. People's need to be loved. Will they ever find their way to Jesus? No one's going to come to Jesus because you're carrying a sign that says God hates what you're doing. People are going to say, come to Jesus because they understand that despite what you're doing, God loves you as much as he could ever possibly love you. Most people just want to be loved. So let's just start there. I'm going to invite our worship team back. Living the mission is centered in loving the broken, in loving the confused, in loving the hurt and hurting, in loving those who desperately need the forgiveness of God. And love pursues by going where people are, even if it isn't popular within religious circles. Love persists by being committed to however long it takes. I'm going to walk with you. I'm going to be in your life. I'm going to have conversations. I'm going to serve you and help you and love you for as long as it takes to that moment where your guard comes down and you let the love of Jesus transform your life. And love provides exactly what each person needs. And we know that because We're not doing this on our own. It's the Holy Spirit that's directing our lives. It's the Holy Spirit that exposes the deep, broken places in people's lives and strategically positions us 
stand there with our arms open to love even the unlovable with the grace of God. If we can't love all people, we can't live the mission. If we can't love everybody despite what they think, believe, and say, and do, we may as well just pack this all up and go home. Because Jesus shows us something very different. We're not wall builders. We're bridge builders. Would you stand with me this morning? I'm going to invite our prayer team to come. And I'd like to encourage you this morning as Tyler leads us to ask the Holy Spirit to help you process some of what you've heard here this morning. Specifically, what does this mean for me? Me. How's my life going to be different as I pursue what Jesus is calling me to? And if you're here this morning and there's a need in your family and there's a need in your life and you want someone to come and pray for you, the church exists for that. We, you're our family. You're our community. We want to come alongside you. It's not either or. We don't have to live the mission to the point that we neglect each other. No, we love each other. We want to build each other up. We're going to pray with you and encourage you, but we're not going to stop there. We're going to take this on the road. You know, I was thinking this morning, this is a little cheesy, but when Jesus said to the religious leaders who said, you know what, Jesus, uh, you know, if you had any idea of how sinful the people are that you're associating with, you wouldn't do it. And Jesus said, you know what, it's not the well that need a doctor is the sick. And I thought, you know what, he even went a, a step further. Jesus does house calls. He does house calls. He doesn't sit in the clinic and say, you know what, whoever wants to come in. No, he takes it on the road. And so when we leave here, that's what we do too. We take the mission. We live the mission outside these walls.